Like many of you, I am fascinated by the idea of churchly unity. Not just a couple or a city full of churches partnering together and passing fancy ideas and projects, but actual, substantive, spiritual, we are one in Jesus, body of Christ, oneness. It actually haunts me, to be honest. If you've ever read in John 17, you see that Jesus's only prayer for those of us who would believe because of the apostles' message was that we would be one. And yet here we are talking about it because we know that disunity is probably one of the truest things about the body of Christ today. And boy, what a tragedy that is. And if I could look at the symptoms of our failure, I would say that the biggest problem is that we tend to think of getting to unity through the mechanics of right or altered thinking or earthly agreements kind of coming to partnerships, those sorts of things, at times even having joint enemies. So that's us trying to get to a place of unity through these external means and measures. But what if instead, by abiding in our existing union with Jesus and through him union with each other that is promised in the scriptures and from his very lips, what if we then find our right thinking in him, our natural spiritual agreement through him, and frankly, an already conquered enemy and sinful nature by him? Like, what if we're already one And we just need to learn how it works. One of my favorite books on the early centuries of the the young church, the early church, is a book by a man named Thomas Lindsay. It's called The Church and the Ministry in the Early Centuries. And it's so clarifying to read where this all began and to see over time Uh, the accretions, the uh, additions, the uh, all the ways in which we've slightly deviated right from the beginning and have ended up where we are today. And in that book, uh, there's one paragraph that I find just stunning in its clarity, and I'm just going to read it to you, and I want you to listen very carefully to some of these really, truly lovely phrases. Listen. The situation, therefore, may be thus expressed. There were thousands of churches, most of them single congregations, which nevertheless were one church, not because they had agreed in any formal way to become one, not because there was any polity linking them together in one great whole, but because they had the unmistakable feeling that they belonged to one brotherhood. They lived in the immediate presence of eternity, on the threshold of the blessed and real life which awaited them, when the period of their probation in this world was ended. And every Christian community had the feeling that it was its its business, uh, by a strict discipline, to preserve, in the pure life of the members of the little brotherhood, a foreshadowing of the life which awaited them when the Father should call them home to himself. Meanwhile, they were in the presence of a hostile and evil world power, which was under the dominion of sin, and which manifested itself to them in the persecuting pagan state. That was the first stage. Doctrine could scarcely be said to exist, and doctrinal divisions were therefore almost impossible. No doubt, 
Their teachers and leaders occasionally warned them against strange teachings, but these were limited to individuals or to small companies and hardly impressed the imagination. End quote. So what we're reading about there in the early days, say that first century and a half, it was unity not in formal agreement or linkage of polity or the, the diminishment of doctrinal divisions, but in the unmistakable feeling and belief that they, that we are in fact one brotherhood. And so living in the immediate presence of eternity, on the threshold of the blessed real life, that it was theirs and it's our mutual business to preserve in purity and mutual passion the foreshadowing of the life that is mutually awaiting us. They didn't. We shouldn't be bickering over overriding doctrinal disagreements because let's be honest, we've hardly begun to really take hold of all that Jesus has called us to in the first place. And in fact, that last thought brings me to another line from that same work by Thomas Lindsay. Listen to this. He writes, Irenaeus voiced the claimant need of the church. His rallying cry is familiar enough. It is one which has arisen always in such crises. It was practically this. Back to the Christ of history. Back to the fixed verities of the Christian faith. I couldn't say it better myself, friends. There's just nothing more important for each person listening to my voice right now, going about the business of being the body of Christ this week. There is nothing higher or better for us than going right back to the feet of Jesus. The feet of Jesus that we meet on the pages of the four gospels, uh, the, the feet of Jesus that we know by his very spirit indwelling us. And yes, back to the fixed verities of the Christian faith, that we are, we are called to live, to follow him, to lay down our lives, to turn the other cheek, to be him for all practical purposes for the world of today. So the whole thing about unity is simple. It's just Jesus. It's just our mutual experience of Jesus one day, one week at a time in this generation and for all time. So friends, you and I are actually already one, whether you are Protestant or Catholic. The question is, will each of us be one with Jesus as we are one with each other? Let's abide in him. Let's delight in what we have in our brothers and sisters. And then let's go simply do what we're called to do in love. It's a thrill to think about. We're already at the departure point, the departure point that he's called us to be at and also the place of arrival. We're already there. So let's enjoy what he's done. Let's go do it. Thanks for listening.